guys, and welcome to another edition of Hitchhiker's Guide to Nuclear. I'm your host, Gunther. On this week's show, Russia places a possible nuclear foothold in Iran. It Air is all kicking off at Siba at Ita. We place our Geiger counters over the fallout from the European elections. And Gojira Gakait Kararawa Tatake Mashor. I think I've said that right, guys. <laughs> so, on this month slash quarterly slash six monthly <laughs> show, we've got Kate Tucker, a regular. Hello. Hello. We've got Steve Blacksland. Hello. We've got a new face, Mark. Hi. And Liz as well is a new face. Hi. <laughs> so, how are you guys today? All right? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. been up to much or this week. This month, this past six months, been not so much at all, considering we haven't been on air that long. No? Nothing? Lizzie and I went to the Nuclear Institute dinner. Right, how was that? Last Thursday, it was very good, very good. Lots of free wine. Lots of free wine? Lots of free wine. Was this just one glass of free wine and then descended into lots of glasses of free wine? Well, I I somehow ended up on the table of organisers, so... It was good. Oh, right. You're in a very <laughs> privileged good, position yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. So was the dinner good, though? So it was. It what was the evening about, then? Just a gathering of people in the nuclear industry, really. Probably over 500 people. Wow, OK. So, Where yeah, was that held? It was actually at the Trafford Cricket Ground, so... I had a great time <laughs> being a cricket fan. To be honest, the lack of good cricket that's been on there, you may as well just be I know, yeah. by the side it of did rain empty pitch. All night as well. <laughs> oh, it rained all night. Rained Typical all night, cricket so, yeah. style. <laughs> so we've got two new additions to the show. Mark, do you want to say a little bit about yourself and yeah, where sure. you come from and who you are? And <clears throat> okay, so I've just started my nuclear PhD here at Manchester. I come from a little town called Harpenden, near the St Albans. And an interesting fact would be that I played football for the eleven side team, local team, and in ten years I didn't score a single goal. But you know, great right back. Right back. Right back in the changing rooms. People always use I I think I scored two because I was left back and I always got left back in the changing rooms yeah. all the time. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I had a great assist record though. I had a great uh-huh. assist record because all Shame I used it to do. doesn't really count in. in nope. No, nope. <laughs> I used to just kick the ball like 30 yards forward and hope to God someone would kick it. And, uh, yeah. That was my policy. And take people out. So that was my other. Uh-huh. <laughs> I used to get sent off a lot. Oh, yeah. That was rugby. So, Liz, do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm doing a doctorate in nuclear engineering. Um, I started in October time. I'm from Portsmouth originally and then came to Manchester to do my undergraduate and I genuinely can't think of anything interesting right now so I'm a very boring person. My interesting fact is I'm so boring I can't think of anything interesting. Um, I'm trying to think, John Mann had a really interesting one. He was part of the Roller Coaster Society. (laughs) But wasn't he used to be a roller coaster engineer? Yeah, he used to inspect roller coasters. I know. Oh, I guess an interesting fact would I went on the smiler and didn't die. And it didn't break down on me. That's that's. Oh right! Has anyone died on that ride? Or? No, but people oh, right. keep on getting oh, God, stuck on it. That wouldn't be anything to <laughs> smile about, would it? Oh right! I didn't know anyone. All oh, right, it was a breakdown a lot. It, it kept, well, well, when it when it first opened, we went on the day that it was supposed to get like open. It was like the release date for the roller coaster, and it wasn't allowed to open because it kept on breaking down in testing. And it kept on breaking down after it was opened as well, but it didn't break down when we were there. It's probably because John Mann had something to do with, you know, design. 
Well, did you ever see? Did you ever see when Oblivion broke down? I remember, you know, because Oblivion's the vertical one, isn't I've it? I've been on it when it's broken at the top. Yeah. So for those listeners out there, wow. Oblivion in the Smire at a place called Alton Towers in the UK, <clears throat> it's a big theme park, and Oblivion's. Wasn't it the first vertical drop yeah. over so many the longest, feet? The longest, the longest the, drop. In the world. I remember breaking at the top on that ride, and there was a kid yeah. in the front row crying <laughs> so much. Alton Towers is pretty famous, though, isn't it, for rides breaking yeah. down? Yeah. But yeah. nothing broke down when I went this year, yeah. so... Uh, it is over in about three seconds as well. It so. is, isn't it? It's so <laughs> anticlimactic. <laughs> you do go through... You do, it does feel like you're going through the ground, because it goes underground, doesn't it? It does, yeah. 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 Pretty, yeah. That's quite cool. Yeah. yeah, it is pretty cool. And water vapour hits But yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you beautiful. <laughs> After you get off the ride, it's like, oh, that was actually yeah. a two-hour queue for that. <laughs> it is, isn't it? You queue for ages. Oh, I didn't have to queue at all yeah. for anything. Oh, oh, that. What did you go like when it, school was on, basically? My little brothers are autistic, so they get to not queue for things. Okay, fair enough. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I want. I want to go with John Mann just to claim I'm a roller coaster inspector and just go rides constantly. Like, yeah. Just need to inspect this ride one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go around. Yeah. Right, so should, should we get on with it? Uh-huh. Cool. With the recently published UNIAEA report stating that Iran is curbing its nuclear activities, Rosatom, the Russian energy giant, have announced they are in talks with the country to support the construction of new nuclear power plants, including two at the much maligned Bashara power plant site. However, with international talks yet again stalling between the West and Iran, how will Russia's stance affect global relations and ultimately have Iran turn the corner? So, what do we think about this one, guys? So, so should we sort of break it down and perhaps talk about this report that's come out about Iran? I mean, we, we talked about it back in February now, I believe, when we were discussing how Iran have actually started to negotiate with the West on uh, its enrichment policy. So how, how do we think it's gone so far. Well, didn't they reduce their stock of uh, 20%? And, as in, like, they haven't produced any more above 20%? Or yeah. The IAEA, so that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, they came up with a report in this last month called Implementation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Safeguards Agreement and Relevant Provisions of Security Council Resolutions in the Islamic Republic of Iran, not (laughs) Laran. So they said that enrichment of UF6 above 5%, so that's uh, above 5% uranium-235, is no longer taking place. So the amount of nuclear material that does remain in the form of UF-6 is enriched up to 20, is actually 160 kilos. So they aren't necessarily enriching UF-6 above 5 at the moment at two sites, but however, they are continuing enriching at some other sites. So they haven't completely stopped, uh, but they are winding it down. And the amount of nuclear material that remains in the form of UF6 enriched up to 5% is in fact 7,000 kilos. So they do have quite a lot of stock left, but obviously this can't happen <coughs> overnight. So do you think it's a well, good step forward for the country? Well, I mean, you know, it's not really weapons grade, yes. even at 20%, is it? So is, is that a is it a problem? immediate concern? It sounds like it's good to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think... It and it's especially since, you know, they've said <clears throat> they're going to oxidise their UF6, you know, so that then becomes much harder to re-enrich mm-hmm. and ready for fuel fabrication. Which they're well within their rights to do. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the non-proliferation treaty. Is it 
is it a problem that they have no they're fully they're fully within their rights to have nuclear energy which um has been a source of contention for them well it's part of the again going back to like the 50s and with the atoms for peace program Mm. that was the whole point of it being set up was that they wanted to carefully control the proliferation of civilian nuclear power to foreign countries Mm. that weren't part of the big six let's say or the big two let's put it that way in in the 50s But obviously Iran at first illicitly tried to gain nuclear power in order to create bomb technology and their civilian power has been an offshoot of that. So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that they decided one day to do civilian, they've decided from the outset to do nuclear weapons tech and that's why obviously foreign countries are a bit more sceptical by But they haven't found any evidence of nuclear no. weapons production no. any time recently. No. And it's quite clear, though, that the production area where they're producing this stuff, uh, no additional sensor users have actually been installed. Um, so there's no rapid increase in the amount of sensor users they're making, which would suggest something illegal. Uh, yeah, they're not doing that. Yeah, I think you probably agree with Mark, to be honest. I think it's a positive thing. Yeah. I don't think you can criticise them for um, uh, cooperating, cooperating with the UN on it. So... That's yeah. a bit of a non a non sequitur, really. But what, what do you think, Steve? You seem you're no, on the no. edge of your seat here. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just read. Well, recently I've read about the Wall Street Journal. They said that even though they might be reducing their stockpiles, they're still keeping intact their whole. Like, they've got a team of people who are working on the weaponization of it. And, and where did that information come from, America? Uh, this came from the opposition <laughs> of the current Iran regime. So, yes. of course, it might America. Be <laughs> No, within Iran itself. So it just, suge- it just suggests that China's kept active its intact core team of weaponization researchers. Well, I personally think that... So surely that should just be disbanded instantly, is my worry. Why should it, though, be... I, I, I'm. So they're saying they're not making them, but then they keep a team of nuclear weapon but do you, experts. Do you, do you yeah, but America is supposed to be reducing their arsenal, and there's little evidence that they're doing that. Same with the rest of the world. And also, I'm isn't sure it... Got to do with it. But... Short, I, think, I don't think you can expect a country to not have nuclear weapons if the rest of the world is shown no evidence to try and actually reduce their arsenals. No, no, which is that. my main problem with the world and their <laughs> hatred of Iran in this situation because A, they find no evidence of nuclear weapons and B, the rest of the world isn't really making a lot of effort to reduce their arsenals. Look at the UK trying to get Trident up and running, which is a ridiculous idea, but they're probably still going to do it anyway. Well, I think we want to be in the Security Council, don't we? So but we kind of need to. why do we need to? Because we don't know what the future of nuclear weapons but is. But if no one had nuclear weapons, then we wouldn't have yeah, to worry. Yeah, that's the ideal situation, but what if one had one secret one? But exactly my point. If, one, if countries do have them, then it's very difficult for other countries to not feel threatened by that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Which is, I can understand, you know, if they have said to the IAEA that they're not going to have a nuclear weapons arsenal, which is fair enough. They haven't found any evidence of that. There isn't any reason to have a team of nuclear weapons specialists. I do get that. But why is there no reason not to have a team of nuclear weapons specialists? Is it not important to, even though you don't have an arsenal yourself, to explore the possibilities of other people's arsenals? Because obviously, even if we all reduce our arsenals, there are the, 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 the bigger players are still going to have arsenals. So is it not important to understand theirs? And that's why you have researchers to understand their technology. So if you disband that completely, there is there's no way for them to counteract. Even even if you're not producing the weapons yourself, it's it's nice to have an idea of what other people's capabilities are. 
and that's what the research is there for. Yeah, good point. Okay, but what do we think about, I suppose, the recent announcement then by Russia, who have have plans at the moment to sign a contract with Iran to build two more nuclear reactors at its Bashara power plant as part of a broader deal for up to eight reactors in the Islamic State. Well, why not? Good. Why not? If they, it's a good way of creating energy, which the rest of the world needs to realise. And Iran are obviously making steps to make that possible for them as a, a country probably should take a leaf out of their book in England, really, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think what worries me is um, the whole nature of that site uh, from a safety point of view. Not anything to do with Iran having the right, you know, to produce civilian nuclear power tech. I'd feel they're perfectly within their right to. Uh, it's just some of the stuff that's happened with, with Bashar in the past. So Bashar is a plant... Um, which is near a fault line, built, well, it was attempted to be built in the 70s by the Germans pre-Iranian uh, revolution at the end of the 70s. And then as soon as 79 hit, the Germans decided to get out of the country, which anyone in their right mind would during that sort of social and political upheaval. And the Russians came in later on and decided to put their own reactor into that site, yet all the construction had been built around the reactor, as it were, and the Russians came in with a modified reactor, uh, and it wasn't necessarily the right design for that site. That's the only thing that worries me, is that Russian headlong into it like that. I mean, bearing in mind, Bashar has only been producing power for the past few years, and it was built in the 70s. So that sort of gives you an indication as how... So your concern is with the, if you're going to extend life, it's not necessarily safe to do so, because it's not been as stringently safety-regulated. Yeah. So well, I, I think international bodies that could go in and aid them with such procedures, surely. Yeah, I mean the Natural Resources Defence Council though placed Bashara within the second group of thirty six reactors with high seismic hazard areas. So yeah, um, you know, th- it is important to realise that maybe it shouldn't be built there, you yeah, know, at yeah. all. Maybe there should be um, I don't know if it's links to a sense of pride with the country that they want it built there because it's taken them so yeah. long to build the thing mm-hmm. uh, and it's been so fraught with delays and difficulties that they feel compelled to do something there so yeah I, I mean I, I, I mean uh, this is just, I think it goes back to what you were saying Kate though is that I don't see a problem with it if hmm. it's for you know it's for civilian purposes isn't it it's yeah so I do it's think built, sorry I do think obviously that's a completely different story like mm. the potential of natural disasters um, really should be a, a massive issue when choosing a site in which to build that, yeah, a nuclear I mean, power station. That would be like a global issue if it comes yeah. to Well, obviously, serious. Japan is a prime example yeah. of that. But obviously, they maybe didn't have the awareness 50 years ago when it was built. But I think nowadays that should be a primary <laughs> factor, <Yeah. laughs> whether you build a power station on a fault line or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, and the other thing, a bit, a bit, another concern was Western fears that the... <laughs> That the Bashara project could yield spent fuel of use in nuclear weapons. Um, isn't but why isn't is that, that an um, issue? Don't do not well. All nuclear reactors produce things that could uh, like spent fuel that can be used in in reactors. But it's, it it's whether you reprocess it or not. To I think that their opinion on that, as far as I've heard, was that they were going to send the fuel back. 
to Yeah, so I think right, since Rahaney's come in, it's completely changed now. Yeah. Uh, let's say secretive approach to international diplomacy has changed. So Rahaney and the moderate government of the state now has become much more moderate. Uh, so they're clearly... I mean, obviously, with these talks, they've been much more open with the West now anyway. Uh, and they've said that they'd send that material back to Russia. So it seems to have alleviated those concerns. But again, I, I think it goes back to safety, really. And I think the weird thing is this geopolitical thing with uh, Moscow sort of being a bit tentative on some of the UN's resolutions or sanctions against Iran that the rest of the UN have agreed to. Russia seems to have been a bit tepid in their response to one or two of them. So I'm not sure how that's going to affect the deal or whether there's some other motive there, perhaps. You know, this is clearly something that Russia aren't doing at the kindness of their heart. There has to be some benefit for them out of doing it. So I, yeah. you know... Politically, I mean, you know, not just economically. I can't, you know, but I don't know, maybe. I mean, the good thing is about that IAEA report is it, it lays out everything mm. very candidly. It's a good report. It's got all the facts sorted. And I think that mm. anything that anyone talks about, really, maybe we're a bit victim to, but it's going to be either be hyperbole or complete speculation because no one really knows where all this is going. Yeah. So to do so otherwise is a bit... Not irresponsible, but a bit, you know, a bit, a bit silly, really, because Iran seems. I do think Iran have really changed their tune, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. But they should be given some yeah. respect. <laughs> <laughs> so, has anyone else got any opinions on it before we move on? No. No. Steve. I'm again, you're looking. You're, you're on the edge of your seat, there, mate. Talking about nuclear fission, what of nuclear fusion? Where are we currently with the energy smoking gun? And will answers be found at ITER, an international facility in the south of France? <laughs> France. <laughs> so, guys, put this in a bit of context. Obviously, this show is primarily dealing with nuclear fission, which is releasing energy by splitting the atom, uh, whereas <laughs> fusion is generating energy from actually fusing two atoms together. So ITER's actually a... It's, it's, it's being built, isn't it, currently? So mm-hmm. does anyone know how it works? or It's supposed to create a plasma. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> something like 100 million Kelvin. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which will allow the atoms to be have enough kinetic energy to overcome the columbic barrier uh, so they can combine. And this comes with it uh, in the release of more energy. And thus, the reaction can be self-sustaining, theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> How did they? That was ripped straight from Spider-Man Two. <laughs> <laughs> How did they create said temperature? Well, I mean, the the, the thing that they do is uh, they have need a lot of energy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> they need some bloody big heaters. Uh, <laughs> so they have something to do with vacuums and lots of advanced physics. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially ITER is what's called the tokamak, so it's essentially a donut-shaped... Magnet. Yeah, and what they need to do is, like you were right, Mark, they have to confine the plasma, but in order for fusion to take place, they have to confine it for long enough that they can pass the barrier. 
Um, so all the Coulomb barriers, for you guys who don't know out there, essentially uh, it's a barrier that's conducive to charge, so you have to overcome the charge effects that happen at very close range between two atoms, so you need to overcome that barrier. Um, so we could go on all day yeah. about quantum <laughs> mechanics, but essentially what you want to do is you realise that in order to bring particles together, you need a magnetic field in that sense to draw them together. But the problem is, is that they found, I know they found with earlier designs on fusion reactors or like in, in concept was if you had one type of magnetic field, you'd always get either a particle going around in a circle or pirouetting around where they wanted it to be or going off in a different direction. So essentially, to hold it, you actually need two sets of magnets together. Um, and they use coils for this, and they pass huge amounts of electric current through them. So you have two fields, a toroidal and a poloidal Ooh. magnetic field. Oh, um, so a, toro a toroid is essentially a coil wrapped around a donut, and you create a magnetic field uh, that goes in the direction of the way the plasma's going around the ring. And a poloidal one is the coils go around the outside of the circumference of the ring and you generate almost like a spiral field and those two combined together confuse your plasma. So it's not done at very high pressures, this, but it's done at extremely high magnetic fields to ensure you can keep that plasma together. But what do you think some of the problems have been so far with fusion? Why it hasn't been... Well, I, why I, all of a sudden it hasn't become this huge and it, you know, and everyone's doing it why, why hasn't I it I remember going to a lecture and it was all about how the uh, the actual plasma itself is so erratic and random that it's really hard to control oh. I remember seeing a model on it it's just ridiculous yeah. I think that's the main reason yeah I mean essentially what you're doing is replicating what's going in at the centre of the sun that's essentially what you're doing so if you think about that scenario it's incredibly high temperatures and it's under incredible pressure uh, at the centre so you've got those two things to actually almost generate in some sort of sense on Earth I mean these magnetic fields just to, just to stress it to you uh, they generate a magnetic field some 200,000 times higher than that of Earth's well technically that kind of pretty crazy shouldn't happen so inside <laughs> yeah. the sun it shouldn't happen it's pretty it just crazy does. Yeah. Um, some weird stuff we don't quite understand goes on quantum mechanics yeah. That yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that that technique that ETA are using is called magnetic confinement. It's pretty obvious. It's magnets confinement. But the other one is actually one that the Americans have been developing, which is called inertial confinement. So that's uh, the opposite. Of what do you guys know about that, Steve? I know you know very little. Yeah, very little. Okay, so they find loads of lasers at a copper pellet and get confused. <laughs> yeah, essentially that copper gold. It's, yeah, gold, and that's one of the reasons it's so expensive, is you get an element at the centre of, I think they use eight lasers, or theoretically they'd use eight lasers, and essentially what you're doing is you heat the outside and you generate a plasma, and the pressure that creates is almost a thermonuclear detonation, so it actually puts pressure on the elements you're trying to fuse together, and then it blows up, essentially, and all that energy that's released from that, theoretically, you could convert into electricity, but that's obviously, just by saying it out loud, sounds pretty crazy. And I think one of the big challenges for inertial is uh, the cost. Yeah. You've got to remember, isn't it? Like the materials they use for these things yeah. to contain them mm. is unbelievable. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. um, do we not think that it would be better to 
deal with the problems that we have currently oh. <laughs> rather than <laughs> I, I do I'm just saying I think the extent. amount of money they're spending on it and yeah. although it's amazing it's and it, if it works it would be incredible obviously I'm not obviously stupid enough to deny that but I do think we have a huge energy crisis and we have a food crisis and we have a general human rights basic human rights crisis throughout the world and I think this is probably in my opinion at least I mean I think slightly that, uh, unnecessary for current Forecasted they'd, they they had a budget yeah. of ten billion, and by ten by two thousand and nine they'd spent fifteen billion euros. Yeah. yeah, I mean this is the big problem, isn't it? How much one, how how much is it going to cost? But how much energy are you physically putting into this thing mm. to generate some amount of energy? So a big problem they had was I remember there's a TED talk. I forget the guy's name, this kid's name, and they were banging on about how he'd created a nuclear fusion reactor in his garage but actually when you looked at it the economics of energy mm. he'd put in vast amounts of energy more to actually generate a very small amount of energy yeah. so that's the big problem they got and it's yeah. obviously going to cost money yeah. that, that was just a, a pla- he generated a very small plasma as well. yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not industrial <laughs> scale stuff but I mean just to, again to put it in perspective this eater one you were saying Mark with uh, the budget ballooning um they're intending to put it online by 2020. And uh, the reason why we've brought this up is because Toshiba, uh, big, obviously big multinational firm, they've actually just been announced as the provider for these toroidal field coils. And when you put them in the reactor, they're 14 meters high and nine meters wide. So the big, the big coils, <laughs> they're pretty massive. Yeah, it's pretty big. Um, and this is obviously just to generate confinement space where you're only keeping this plasma together for microseconds to uh, up to mm. the order of milliseconds you know so you're not keeping it together long but you're actually yeah. generating this energy so yeah the economics involved must be it is fa- it is fantastic obviously for a science from a scientific angle obviously it is amazing but i do think humans needing food is probably a more pressing issue than what would you say well, though I mean, if this comes out and eater have nailed it they've they proved that magnetic confinement is much better than inertial and they actually generate a lot more energy than they yeah. put in surely it'll be it'll be yeah. worth it because then you've got an un- yeah you've got ultimately a renewable energy source I think that's just too uh, not idyllic in, in my opinion I think it, yeah. it's it's unreasonable to think that that's actually obtainable yeah in my opinion I think <laughs> but I think though then again you always get that joke don't you in science where it's Fusion's 40 years away. Uh-huh. Um, it's but, always 40 years away. Yeah, it's, it's always, always 40, 40 years away. <laughs> you always get that. So, oh, it's 40 years away. Yeah. Uh, and I feel that people, in a way, have been burnt from that whole cold fusion thing that happened decades ago. Yeah. So it obviously came out that they could generate burnt. fusion at room <laughs> temperature. <laughs> yeah. um, and it got, it got completely ridiculed. I think it was uh, Fleischmann, wasn't it? He was a elect- famous electrochemist, but it just got completely derided. Mm. Uh, and I think since then, people have been really burnt and really tepid in their response to hearing that a new fusion experiment's on mm. but I don't know I, I maybe it's because I come from a physics background but I think it's really cool it is uh, cool it is cool and it's I just, think that yeah that I just think this is this promise of we're going to get this we're going to get that all the time and people actually need to deal with the current issues in the world and that is the fact that we're rapidly running out of energy. But I think eaters like their best chance because, as I said, they generate longer confinement times in this thing. If it so works, think it but is it thing. might be 20 years away. What if we don't? What if we now stop doing anything for 20 years and then it doesn't work in 20 years' time and we're absolutely screwed? Well, at least we've tried. 
At least, we've, well, and then yes, we'll all die. At least we've tried. Maybe we'll die. Well, we'll if in twenty years' time, there's Can not enough food watch for arm again? people to. Well, Bruce will listen on again. It's at not. least we tried. Like, <laughs> if, if you look, it's if you take that angle, what right? Sorry, okay. Mark. Go on. Sorry. sorry. You've got this correlation with energy and quality of life, and if you had this theoretically uh, limitless power source, you could improve quality of life globally. Of course, I think I'm just quite pessimistic that it's actually ever going to happen. Uh-huh. I and that's that. my argument for it. Yeah. If, if I believed it did, and maybe I th- see things a bit differently. But, but I think this, um, to me, like from a purely scientific point of view, is why we're scientists. It's like, it's, it's not necessarily like, I mean, obviously Brian Cox has argued, and other people in the public, quite ardently, and some would say positively, that CERN, there's going to be loads of offshoots from CERN, as a collide, you know, there's going to be all these benefits, but primarily CERN has been for looking at the Big Bang. That's what it's just, and looking it's just fundamental at yeah, uh, physics, fundamental chemistry. physics, and it's cost a lot of money. Whereas ITER is something that is purely being done for, I would argue, primarily humankind in the sense that it could develop a tech that will, you know, its, it's primary purpose is not curiosity; it's actually yeah. necessity of creating a it's new that, resource. It's that blue sky versus implementing science. Thinking. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this the theory is well established for fusion, but it's you know I, I think that eaters. I mean, some people have argued eaters some of so much. I just think it's complete nonsense because, uh, mm-hmm. as I said, it's it's not driven by human curiosity; it's driven by a necessity. So I don't know. Like as a scientist, I, I think it's really I think it's really cool. It but again, cool. it's, it's money and and then and then it's like. How do you put this on an industrial scale then? I suppose yeah. that's going to be a new challenge. You know, you're talking about time, then, aren't you? Do, do, is it going to be made available for people that can't afford to have the technology in the first place? That's, Ooh. you know, there's all these arguments. That's all, well, that's like, all, oh, that's all ethical considerations, though, isn't it? We could talk for infinitum <laughs> about the ethics of energy resources. But, I mean, that is a thing, though, isn't it? I mean, is it this yeah, no, I tech, agree with you. how much is going to be to build? Have Toshiba got a mechanism in place? I mean, obviously you don't just need coils. You need you well, need a form of superconduction. Mm-hmm. So you need cooling. You know, you need it's advanced amazing. cooling. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating, yeah. But at yeah. the same yeah. time, is it economically viable in the sense that the materials could, I don't know, depreciate in value rapidly enough that a country could build four of them? But I suppose that's supply and demand, is though, isn't it? If lots of people demand them, and then you're generating enough supply, then it's obviously going to go down. In, Price, you know. I think is there enough of the materials in the world to build them in the first place? I think ETA's a bit, bit, a bit, a bit of a better example of the materials they're using. They're mm. more conducive to uh, better economics than what's been happening in America. But um, again, I'm not an expert on. There are a lot of really good researchers uh, research into um, making the materials that they use uh, more efficient for their pro- properties and, and the way that they mm. work. So they're producing some really interesting research on on making like basic steels stronger um yeah by adding like nanoparticles to them and that way they're the processing for those as well they're not they're not smelting they're not well yeah they're not smelting they're not not having to mold them they're 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 pressing powder together and it's new technology even for the manufacture of the material i think that's really cool because it's not only are they making new reactors they're, made, they're, they're researching everything to that point we're actually doing the research before we implement this time does yeah. that make sense because with fission yeah. we kind of didn't do enough mm. research yeah. before we kind of went in and did it and now we actually have so everything yeah. that we've come across as an issue in fission they've 
gone, this could be an issue in fusion. Mm-hmm. Let's address this before we make make yeah, a fusion I mean, reactor. And I think that's I think that's pretty cool. I think the other thing yeah. Mark alluded to was just the raw materials for like what you need in it. So deuterium and tritium, and they're so abundant. Yeah. So deuterium is essentially heavy yeah. water, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, you have to make reactors. Look at the ocean. You could get your tritium from fusion. Uh, fission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you could. Uh, I don't know why we're well, even encouraging That's a waste, it, isn't it, really? We'll all be out of yeah. a job because we're all fission scientists. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm a, I'm a, well, no. I think we're all material, well, I'm a material scientist technically, so it's got to be alright. Yeah, we'll just, but, yeah I, I think... Mark and I will be out of a job then. <laughs> yeah. I think just to wrap it up, I think uh, you guys out there should watch this space on it, really, because it's, it's certainly going to happen over the next few years and as I said by 2020 should be online um, so yeah just what's the bet it will be online by 2020 <laughs> <laughs> I will bet you 50 English pounds that is not 50. online by 2020 <laughs> you've been you've I'll heard this live on our show <laughs> I'll take that right. okay deal oh no we're shaking on it alright <laughs> should, we, should we move on then after that incredible betting situation we've had okay <laughs> Isn't it charming? Lead with your fist, then back out again. Let's set a fire to all that we've seen. How come the days lead us back into the way? It's the wise sage, Nigel Farage, once predicted. That is not my own opinion. The European elections have led to a figurative earthquake in international politics. But how have the aftershocks affected the uh, energy sector? And what are the newly appointed Eurosceptics' views on nuclear energy? So, guys, the vote for the European election was last Thursday, wasn't it? Did we all go out to vote? Yeah, definitely. Yes, I did. Yeah? I did not. Oh. Because you noobs. So, um, I don't know what... The, I mean, obviously, we're not going to ask who you voted for or anything like that. That's completely private. But what what do you think of the fallout, then, from the elections and, you know, in the next few days? So, I, I mean, let's not talk about local. No. You know, yeah. let's say... Let's talk more about uh, the European elections. I do think... Um, the percentage of people that voted was quite disgraceful. What was the actual honest. percentage? Then? I agree with you. Thirty-four. <laughs> I didn't vote. Okay. I think higher, that is in Europe, which actually is a complete and utter, not, like terrible yeah. representation. What thirty-four percent of Europe? No, thirty-four no, no, percent of the UK voted. I think that's disgraceful. I should not vote. That's bad. Which, if you're the other sixty-six percent, that's not happening. Then you have no. I know, I completely agree. I I, I can't have an opinion on any of this because I didn't vote. But I didn't vote because I wasn't registered in the place that I currently am at, so I couldn't actually go to vote, and I was away. Okay, well, anyway, so what do you you think about the fallout with um, the change, let's say, in the political landscape? I don't think it's representative of people's opinions in the country because so few people voted, I think, really. I 
think it's it was quite scary not trying to be but do <laughs> you think that, I saying a political rant or anything. Yeah, but do you, do, do you think that that sense of... I mean, I, I, I'd say as a voter, I'm apathetic. Like, you know, I, I like to all the parties, you know, and I feel a bit... And all those people who clearly didn't vote, I would say they're so ambivalent towards the landscape in the first place that they may well have voted in that direction if they were forced to vote. Well, you know, they should have voted, but I mean, you know, the, do you know what I mean? Right, so I, not, yeah, I, I think totally, it is representative. Yeah. I, I totally mean, agree, but you I... You can't dismiss it. Yeah, you can't say it's completely wholly unrepresentative because... Well, we can't really say what I want to say. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, 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 but like... Uh, no, but I do, I think, I understand your opinion on people's apathy towards voting mm-hmm. and I understand that in this country I do feel like you don't really have any kind of, you know, like propaganda towards parties. You just have a few leaflets through your door and that's it, really. There's no kind of, mm. you know, a lot of it is available on the internet, but I think a lot of people need it to be in their faces a lot of the time to actually realise. Um, but at the same time, we're lucky enough to live in a democratic nation and everyone who had the right to vote should have voted. And I think it should be compulsory. Yeah, I mean, it was it. Think it should be like Australia. I think it should be like Australia, and I think we should have a compulsory vote. I agree. I really do. It's disgraceful that we're lucky enough and privileged enough to live in this country, and people just cannot. Let's say, I suppose what we're getting to though is, um, oh no, it's all you guys, obviously. But what the political landscape looks like now as it did before. So not, not you know, let's not get bogged down in voting and. Whether people should or shouldn't vote, the reality is is that UKIP got a hell of a lot of seats, uh-huh. uh, or let's say a high proportion yeah. of seats in the European Parliament for the UK, for the representative on the UK. So I don't know. I, do you, I mean, obviously the landscape's changed. I think it means it means a change in a lot of European policy potentially, because yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. it's not just the UK that's voted in there. National party, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot it's of, happened in a lot of countries. Yeah. Well, I think Fran- France is obviously yeah. the other big one. So Marie yeah, Le Pen with the French National Front. Yeah. Uh, some would argue they're much more far right leaning than even UK yeah. are. Um, so I'm not pretending to be a political expert, <laughs> but I can definitely foresee some yeah. some big changes. Maybe. What was the percentage of voters for the whole of the the, the, the elections? I mean, Europe, Europe elections it was obviously about forty percent. Does that not just show that there's a revolution in the idea of how we are voting? Nobody really agrees with how how their their country works, and is them abstaining from their right to vote actually a political statement? But you could spoil your vote, like you could go and say that, basically saying that you're willing to vote, but you're not willing to vote for anyone in of course power. Which I think if I, but a lot of people don't know that they can do that. Like I didn't know that till last week when somebody mm-hmm. told me after I didn't vote that yeah. they told me that I should have just gone and voted and written on my paper and gone, I don't agree with any of this. Yeah. Some people are not aware that you can do that. We don't get taught about how to vote yeah, in our it's country. Very true. It's so, but possibly moving away again from... Yeah, again, that's moving away again from... Of course, but... Like, we're talking about, you said, like, EU policy change. Like, yeah. I think Mark's yeah. alluded to it. Yeah, they're just going to be scaled back, aren't they? I mean, I love David Cameron. Did you see when he, he came out of that car at EU and he all of a sudden he's, like, completely changed this tune now? It's like, no, we need... EU's too bossy and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, no, we need to change, we need to change. And like, they're all yeah. obsessed with it. I think this new, the European Commission, isn't it? They're, they're voting in the new president for the EC. Mm. That's going to be interesting because one of the candidates for them is completely adamant that the union's going to stay together. Whereas some countries now, especially yeah. France and the UK now, are like, well, maybe we shouldn't. No. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, 
this sort of voting encourages the the big you know free parties or whatever to rethink entirely their stance on EU mm. and that in a way is just as effective as confronting someone new yeah no yeah and I think that it's quite interesting because if you look at Jeremy Vine's amazing graphics, so you guys out there who don't know Jeremy Vine, he's an amazing BBC political commentator. He's got Jeremy Vine on Radio 2 that I really like. My government hates it though. But he does amazingly over-the-top graphics on the BBC voting stuff. And he was actually showing that how limited the power that has been gained by parties like UKIP and stuff like that are. Because if you look at the block that they've created within the EU, it's actually a much, much smaller portion than it is the Democrats or uh, the Conservatives. Well, not the Conservatives have now generated their own arm of the EU, but essentially, from my understanding, is that they form blocks, don't they, within the EU. So any, any party they sympathise with, they tend to latch with and vote in, in tandem with them. So I'm not really sure... This earthquake that everyone thinks it is from the perspective of, I don't necessarily think UKIP have got the power that they're saying that they have in the EU because no, there's, no, there's no there's nowhere near enough of them uh, to vote. Even Le Pen's National Front, there's you know they're still outweighed yeah. vast majority by Conservatives and Liberals within yeah. the EU. So it's not. It's more to do with their influence and 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 mm. not in, you know they don't have that power necessarily, but it's mm. making. Other politicians rethink their attitude. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe, yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people did it as maybe a protest vote. To oh, I struggle with you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? I think there are really uh, people that are very adamant about their opinions on, on this sort of, of the, course, the European yeah. scepticism. But th- I think that that's fine. I think that, that the European scepticism during a recession, so a lot of the problems that we have in, during a recession impact every every country in the European Union. So if there's one country doing very badly, it brings down the economics everywhere in the European Union. And I think that a lot of people have voted for their, the parties that are European sceptics due to the fact that they've had an economic re- recession. They want to change and they feel that it's the fact that a different country has an impact on their economy and they don't want that. They want to stand on, on their own feet. And I think that's why France have heavily voted towards that kind of thing because France are a very, very independent country. Like they kind of negate a lot of what the EU says anyway. Well, I think that goes on to quite well then because France is. I am looking at a very big photograph of Marine Le Pen uh, <laughs> on the news website. And what, what I mean, what so we're talking about Paul Marx alluded to with policy changes and this is going to force policy changes. But what do you think it means for energy policy with nuclear in particular? Uh, where do you think we sit now after these elections? I don't think there'll be any significant changes, if I'm no. being honest, yeah, at, no, all. No, at all. Yeah. Um, I think hopefully they'll actually ask educated scientists about what should happen rather than... I think that'll be more important next year, yeah, in, yeah, in general. Definitely. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? When the national elections come, they'll, they'll have great significance. So mm-hmm. if it is that these parties are getting a big share of the vote and seats at the next general election, then you know, we've maybe got a question now. Because I, I feel reading... The manifesto of one party in particular that's got a lot of wrote UKIP. Their manifesto is in no way detailed. It doesn't produce any yeah. solutions. Yeah. It just says we need to invest in shale gas and get rid of wind farms. And ninety billion towards building nuclear power. Ninety billion. That's just yeah. such an arbitrary number. That <laughs> do you know what I mean? So that that worries me. Is yeah. if some of these parties who haven't necessarily got a fleshed out policy on energy come in, all of a sudden then. 
However, none I of them ever stick to what they're manifesting. No, 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 yeah. But at least the other parties who don't stick to them have a massive... You know, for all the people who criticise manifestos for being incredibly boring documents, at least they outline everything significantly. Whereas some, I would argue some of these new parties that have come in don't necessarily provide detailed solutions to the problems that they're raising. You know, they're just uh, flag wavers for I just think uh, UKIP in particular took, a, took advantage of the maybe what they would call the general consensus of some buzzwords in this country and kind of, of like, like honed in on those points particularly and therefore gained the votes. I think it's only people I mean, like us that would read a manifesto and look at the energy <coughs> policy based on how we yes. feel about stuff how we feel the country should go in terms of energy. I doubt there's a lot of people in the country that they don't care. Yeah, 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 the they, they don't care how they get their energy as long as they've, as they, long as they've got it. A lot mm. of the general public do not care. And there's statistics that show that if you put coal next to nuclear and put one of them cheaper than the other, people will genuinely just pick the cheaper option. They, they just don't care. They, they have no opinion where it comes from, yeah. as least as they've got it. I think it's worth mentioning a little bit a different angle, but the Green Party actually got a lot of votes in the search, yeah, and yeah. it's not as well covered in the media. They're, they're, well, they're, I However, think there's protestations about it, hasn't there? I, I struggle with them as well, yeah. because it's a similar issue. They, they don't have this well-thought-out plan with terms of energy mix, yeah. um, and in fact, a Green Party supporter was unfortunate enough to come over to our table. We had all of our nuclear group sitting in the union, and she was like, oh, come over and vote Green. And we'd all just having to talk about how they didn't have any energy ideas, so mm. she got a bit of a well, education. The problem is they're full of contradictions, though, because I mean they yeah. want a low carbon economy, and they argue for they've strictly said a low carbon economy. And yeah, they're they're saying carbon. nuclear is a red herring, uh-huh. and that just seems completely bizarre to me. But, but they are. But sadly, yeah, the party that did gain well, in the media mean. gained more seats than I mean, just to put devil's advocate, one party put in their manifesto, I won't repeat them because we've said it that many times, uh, so you probably know which one it is. Uh, EU rules keep energy bills high by forcing taxpayers' money into wasteful wind turbines and solar arrays. So that party, UKIP, um, <laughs> they're uh, suggesting contracts for difference. <laughs> but obviously, plain devil's advocate, they, that strictly ignores the fact that nuclear power stations will use contracts for difference. Which could raise energy bills, you know. So just play devil's advocate on it. You can. No, I mean it. That they, they, they need to address. I think because of that lack of detail and the fact that they don't address, let's say, some of the contradictions and complexities of energy policy. I find that quite worrying. They've just, mm. as you said, as you said, with uh, the Green Party, you know, there's general statements yet there's no concerted plan. I mean maybe this will change at the general election maybe they'll feel that if they need to get seats at general they'll have to produce I think the problem is if they actually outline numbers they would see that they're probably wrong and then (laughs) they would be screwed yeah well um, that's what Lib Dem they didn't really have a manifesto I mean the other we're going to just go on to this quickly then the other other change that people may be able to see coming is um, the French National front have said in no uncertain terms that they don't want General Electric to uh, acquire part of Alstom so they are the massive French high speed train manufacturer but they also produce wind turbines and um, steam stacks and generators for uh, power stations worldwide Le Pen said in no uncertain terms that she wouldn't want that deal to go through so yeah I think you may see a change in terms of how 
let's let's say as, as we've said, gen, gen, if general elections come about and these parties do get a lot more power, then you may see a change in how they treat uh, foreign investment and stuff like that. I don't know, but you may yeah. see a you may see a change in in that. I mean, imagine the UK. I mean, nuclear at the moment is getting a heck of a lot of foreign investment, you know, and there's no, and if UKIP would theoretically turn around and say, no, we want it all UK, that's then that's quite difficult because there's yeah. no infrastructure yeah. in this country, so, the, the, or lack of infrastructure. It's the real concern. Mm. Mm. It is a real concern, but it's something that we should be building, it shouldn't be something we, we are ignoring. I mean, mm. I, I do believe that at the moment yeah. it's something that we have to do and get external financing and, 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 and get other places, well, other countries to help us build our nuclear fleet. But I do believe that we should also be putting the the infrastructure for our, our to build our own nuclear fleet, like do it mm. independently, so that we're not relying on other people. Because when you get into that situation, I don't think that's ever going to happen in this country. <laughs> I well, think, I think the I difficulty in the nuclear is, and it has been for the past fifty years, as it's in this country before vast foreign investment. It was nationalised, privatised, private, partly privatised, nationalised. Yeah. So. You know, ah, like you know, and then BNFL disbanded, and yeah. you know, and all, and all that sort of thing. So all that jiggery pokery with uh, <laughs> with yeah. state ownership and private ownership and all that sort of stuff, it provides a really difficult. And that's why we're in the situation we're in now. With yeah, there's you know. no assertiveness with the government, and instead mm. of the government's change every however many years, right. and they just completely reverse the, the decision or the work that the previous government has. And then it just doesn't get any. And that's the thing with nuclear, really though, isn't it? Nuclear like, a very long-term investment in terms of. But that's what I'm saying. They need to have like a few specific areas, including energy, where the parties, even if they do change, can't really alter mm-hmm. situations like that. Be because it's a political decision. Yeah, it should be not. a scientific decision based on what's best. So you're saying the government should own it again? It's not. It shouldn't be owned by the government. The government shouldn't have anything to do with energy. It shouldn't be a political decision. It should be owned like. The energy board shouldn't be politicians. The energy board should be experts in the field. Oh, yeah. So th- that should be it. And they should not have any political preference. It should just be what's yeah. best. But that's the problem you've got at the moment with... with uh, Sorry. But that's the problem you've got at the moment with energy prices. Is Labour have now announced that they want to freeze them. Which you're trying to create a free energy market and promoting complete state intervention in energy prices. So... You know where do you draw? You know where do you draw the line? Do you go? And that, I suppose that again is down to, as you said, you guys there like political or lack of implementing political allegiances or not. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. See how it goes. Yeah. I suppose. I think it's like your, everything. The problem with the. I mean, we talked a lot about fusion as well. That's that's an extremely long-sighted thing in terms mm. of energy yeah. into our into our energy economy, energy mix. It's going to have a lot more to do with sort of gas over the, our generation. Yeah, uh, and we can only hope that we've laid down some foundations for nuclear for like next generation. Of, of mm. Yeah, and you, well, well, solar. It's all we can hope for, isn't it? Really, yeah. I, I think that's the problem, is, isn't it? We need to get in a place where the politicians have put it forward enough that there's, you know, there's mm. uh, sustainability yeah, there. Which yeah, is completely the opposite of how politics politicians work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're only really short They only do it in their like five year cycles. Why would they want to do yeah. it in anything longer than that? Yeah, which is why we're in the mess that we're in. Yes, vote Kate. Uh, yeah. Right, shall we move on then? Okay. It's certainly charming. It's mostly charming.
In 60 years since Oshiro Honda's seminal classic Gojira stopped on th- stomped onto the silver screen with a cautionary tale of a world in which nuclear weapons had been born. The film resonated on a profound level with Japan at the time and symbolised more than just a miniature puppet on a cardboard set. After countless sequels, remakes and reboots, Gareth Edwards has brought the kaiju back to our screens in the wake of another tragedy in Japan. Do you guys think this new film presents us with another resonant allegory, or should we simply, in the words of Ishuru Serizawa, let them fight? So what do you think, guys? So what do you think about... So me and Steve, and Liz, you've seen the film as well, me and Steve went to see the other day in IMAX 3D, and Steve was extremely concerned about how loud the film was going to be. We both were. We were actually really worried at one point when the adverts came on. I think it was... Was it Tom Cruise's new film? That was loud. That was loud. Like I, I, that was so loud. <laughs> was definitely so <laughs> and then when the film started, I was like, "Whoa, God, Brian Cranston's voice is so loud." Brian Cranston's in it, yeah. Or well, maybe I'll go see it. Then. So we went to see it, didn't we? And essentially, it's a retelling of the original. I've never seen the original Godzilla, as he was named, uh, or Godzilla, as everyone else likes to call him. He was created from a nuclear weapon, essentially, or the fallout from a nuclear bomb. Whereas uh, Gareth Edwards suggests that he's awakened uh, by the bomb. Oh, well, actually, we won't go into it, but it's essentially saying that uh, radiation is, of course, why he's awakened, not necessarily he was created by it. And it's got loads of messages, hasn't it, about environmentalism and uh, how we treat nature and Mother Nature versus humans and all this thing. So what did, what did you guys think of it first? Amazing fights. Amazing <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was pretty interesting. It was pretty interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. So does it, does it try to raise these sort of environmental questions? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it could it do if you want to think about it on that level. If you don't want to think about it on that level, then Still no, you, it, you just enjoy it, it as an action film. Fighting stuff. stuff. Yeah, so... <laughs> but it was pretty interesting. I went with, When I went, I went with uh, three nuclear graduates. No, four nuclear graduates. <laughs> Did one and of them a, die a teacher. Up on that screen or...? Um, um, so there was basically five people who worked in the nuclear industry and one person who didn't work in the nuclear industry. So we were all getting kind of really into it and she was not, she didn't quite understand. Um, but it was quite interesting from that kind of point because we knew what was going on on the nuclear side of stuff. Um, and the, it started with a reactor meltdown, which is pretty cool. Interesting. I think it was actually really brave of them Especially, yeah, to so do close that. To Fukushima, so close yeah. to Fukushima. I was actually really surprised. And it... I, we were talking. Wave coming in, it's like, yeah, really? we were talking about it. It was like pretty damn scary, like, wasn't it? It was really intense. Yeah, it was really, really intense. Like, <laughs> yeah, <spoiler> um, <laughs> and the ending. Was. <laughs> it was kind of surprisingly uh, emotional. I'm not not talking about the end. It's surprisingly. We should say to the viewers out there, Mark hasn't seen it yet, yeah. uh, so we're being very, very 
sensitive about talking about plot spoilers. But anyway, continue. I thought it was pretty emotional. It made you think about quite a lot of uh, the, the the emotional backlash from nuclear and radiation effects and things, and it was quite. I found that in itself. I think. Oh, I think some people from the industry have been quite vocal about just writing it off as just a like a ridiculous blockbuster with just no idea and uh, the original and all the God- Godzillas afterwards and you know let's say the 1998 one with Jamaica famously singing that crap song for it that that one was <laughs> terrible like that didn't say anything about anything uh, at all uh, but this new one I don't know like it's got I do feel it has something to say and I, I think that people who just criticise it and write it off as saying listen at the end of the day it's a monster movie which it is but I don't know it was done with some quite it, it was, felt it was like, done intelligently. I didn't yeah. think it was. It felt like he had some scientific back, uh, background, really, because it wasn't the just. They, they'd done yeah. the research. They talked to. I, I think a simulation of the the reactor meltdown was. Yeah, I mean, not I, I will, too far from what would happen. Um, I mean, I don't know I about mean, that, but I mean, I think it's on a visceral level, like it affected you, like see, like Steve mentioned, didn't you, about the tsunami and like people just dealing with that. Like, I mean, it was just. Yeah, that was pretty frightening. <laughs> like, it was, yeah, it was pretty horrific uh, to watch. And I don't know, I fell in a way. It was so, I mean, I don't like how... I mean, obviously it's a film, but there were certain things like uh, in the film where it's like, my granddad was there August 6th, 1945. And it's like, ah, oh, Hiroshima. <laughs> 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 and they had to, they had to, like, obviously they have to because not many people know. Well, no, they presume the mainstream doesn't know what happened, but I, you know I think you'd be able to. Um, I don't know. Like I, I thought the first half of the film was like really heavy on the environmental stuff, and the latter half of the film, fight like it just went you know proper Gajira kaiju yeah, things like, punching each other for all audiences. Yeah, there was, there was. Yeah. But then again, it's like I don't know. I don't see why people are going. Oh, it was rubbish because at the end of the day, it was just monsters. What were you expecting? You know, I'm like, it was it's a film. Monsters, was it? it was like the way that humans were trying to, to control how the monsters acted, and obviously, like you say, Mother Nature acts, and and we they, they were trying to control it with man-made weaponry, and kind of in the end, that wasn't going to work, and it was never going to work, and mm. I don't know why they thought it was going to work. I'm like, I don't want to spoil the story, but it just seemed. In my opinion, the things that the scientists were doing to negate the fact that there was these creatures was just stupid. It was absolutely ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It was. It was. It was, it was ridiculous. so ridiculous. They were like, "Let's bomb them with nuclear weapons," and it kind of just oh, no, seemed so anything. ridiculous. Yeah. It just seemed so ridiculous. This stuff in the film, though, it's like that. I was like, you know, the Hawaii bit. This is not giving it away, but like, <laughs> I would no one see that thing. I would. I would no one see that massive one hundred foot monster. Like, there's a bit. In particular, more than hundred foot, hundred meters. Yeah, but there's a, bit, there's a bit in the film, not to give this away, but people are sitting on a tram like a monorail, and none of them have noticed, like until it's right next to the tram, this massive monster. They're all like, "They're going, I wonder why the electricity's gone off." Mm, mm. And then literally, like a minute, like, "Oh crap, that's probably why that massive thing right next to us, like a foot away." It's like, no, I just imagine a monster sort of tiptoeing like through, like, oh. Better not step on that car. Better not step. Not in the... So anyway, I mean, but you know, poor, monster. poor Godzilla. I bet, yeah. poor Godzilla. I bet he just wanted a hug. The monster had loads of character, though. Like, that's what I was shocked. Yeah. I cared more about Godzilla. It made you really, really empathetic towards yeah. the creatures. It made you well, it depends. It depends which creatures that you you were empathising for. I didn't really yeah. like the really big hundred 
for things that weren't Godzilla. But there's bits where there's bits in it where Godzilla looked sad. He bowed his head. He looked sad. He's like, still got incredible. There were bits clearly animation. where he looked quite angry, <laughs> which is the majority of the film. <laughs> but I think that's important because it's you know actually thinking about how humans aren't the most important thing. We're, yeah, yeah. we're not the only animal or mammal or creature to have feelings, and to, um, and in general, we think we are. We think that we can go around just doing what we want because we're the only ones that have emotions. But what is to say that other animals don't have emotions and feelings, and that we shouldn't consider them? Mm. I'm not a vegetarian, by the way. Just, just to put that out there. What do you think, Steve? Any? Did you not find any, like an, a any beautiful film? Hollywood actress to connect with in the film? No, no, no. no, they, no. Did not connect Brian with humans. Brian Cranston. <laughs> No, actually, he didn't I just try wanted and destroy him, I just any people. Him, no, but I just wanted him to stare down Godzilla and just scream at him, I am the one who knocks. Like, just like do like a speech from Breaking Bad or something. <laughs> say my say... name, Godzilla. Say my name. <laughs> it, was, it was quite nice the way Godzilla didn't destroy any humans or any human land intentionally. So, like... <laughs> that's, what I lo- that's what I love about it, though, is people have said that, but it's almost as if they sat Godzilla down on a psychiatrist's bench and it's just like, Aww. so what were you really feeling, Godzilla? And it's like, well, I was trying to avoid several million pounds worth of damage whilst fighting these other things. But he didn't go... There were, there were points where he could have just turned around and destroyed the humans. Um, but he didn't. He was only interested in... Exacting his friend. He in made my the opinion. sentient choice not to. Yes. He's he's cool. He's yeah, really cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought so. And not tempted to use it. Yeah. Maybe he should be He should be president of the world. He'd make a lot of <laughs> life decisions, and he'd be pro nuclear. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's ultimately it. Like it had, it had, it was a fun film really good and it actually had something decent to say about the environment and if it, as you said if it's there do you think there's anything silly about it Steve or anything like that well he ate the nuclear waste but then he kept on wanting more but it's like that would last you so long yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes yeah. just feed it to the monsters and then let the monsters fight yeah he's just really impatient isn't he he's like oh damn that cesium just ran out of <laughs> damn <laughs> why is this it's like goes to a hospital and just loads of iodine it's like damn this eight and a half day half life <laughs> <laughs> you just see Godzilla with a watch there just like, oh, for god's sake do you guys have anything decent <laughs> just I guess the problem with that is what happened to the radiation when all the monsters See, this is the thing. Godzilla is the ultimate solution to our nuclear waste problems. Mm. If he likes eating it... Just don't kill him. So it's like iodine, like a sugar rush. (laughs) (laughs) Sugar rush. He goes a bit crazy. (laughs) Yeah, like straight instant... (laughs) Instant gratification. (laughs) Need some carbohydrate. (laughs) Here's some long-lived uranium. (laughs) Low GI. I'm just picturing him. I'm just picturing him at a table with Brian Cranston, the Avengers, eating Sharma or something like that, or just eating something around the table. He's just like, oh, I don't like this. Sprinkle iodine on his chips. On his uranium. Do you think there was anything, anything else silly about it, Steve? Or do you, do you think it was good? Or yeah, it's fine. It's it was a good, good film. Would you recommend it in IMAX? Oh, definitely. Yeah, go see it. Mark. Yeah, it IMAX. I, I mean, the, wasn't it the, when you first hear him roar? When you first hear him roar, 
Wow. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that is, in IMAX, it literally blows your head off. I didn't see it in IMAX, and I thought it was quite good. In fact, I might go and see it in IMAX. Yeah, definitely I recommend definitely it. reckon you could watch it more than The once. 3D, like, you know, I never... Was there any 3D in it? Or we just wearing, I just get the feeling some of these films in 3D, they just make you wear the glasses so they can take photos and put them in Instagram of you looking like a complete moron for two yeah. hours. I reckon that must be it. That's, that's my theory. That is a very expensive... <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's the world's most they expensive practical joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They spent millions. Wow, the street... just for Instagram. I think there was a guy, was actually a bloke sitting next to me, and he was, he was actually being serious. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if he had sight problems or anything like that, but he, he said, wow, this 3D is amazing. It was an advert that was in 2D before the glasses <laughs> on. Uh, like, none of his friends were wearing the 3D glasses. I was like, should anyone say anything? <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a joke. Yeah, no, no, I don't think it was. Like, he, was he was ultimately very serious. <laughs> he was, he was like, oh, wow. He's, are you guys feeling this? And then the guys were like, no. He's like, oh. Aww. He sort of didn't say anything. No one laughed either. So I was like, oh, right, okay. That's a bit awkward. Um, but yeah, go, go and see That's it. Funny. Go and see it. Good, look, good little movie. Or big, however you look at it. Oh. But yeah, that's it from us, guys. Remember, you can uh, tweet us or ask us any questions. We'll probably answer your questions on the next one, because to be honest, we had quite a flurry of questions within an hour before we recorded the show, so uh, didn't really have enough time to think about them. But yeah, just remember, tweet us at hitchhiker or likewise, email us at nuclear.hitchhiker at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, like us on Facebook, um, and now we're on Reddit as well, so you can catch us on Reddit, we like posting stuff on the nuclear subreddit and the nuclear power subreddit, so we're getting quite popular on there. Uh, but yeah, just keep supporting us, and uh, thanks for your interest in the site, uh, we're getting a lot of shares on some of our articles, I know Lizzie did an article back in December that's even popular now, like people are still interested in it, so that was a review of a film called Pandora's Promise. So if you guys out there haven't watched that, I'd definitely recommend it. Catch it on Netflix. Catch it on Netflix. (laughs) You can get it on iTunes for $12.99, which I paid before it came out on Netflix. Um, um, Yeah, damn Netflix. Uh, um, But anyway, I suppose it's just bye from us, guys, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye!